Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Space Talk. I hope wherever you are in the world, you are having a wonderful day, or if it's evening by you, I envy you because you are already probably stargazing. And if you're not, I hope you get to get outside and maybe look up at the sky and see um, what we are now approaching a first quarter moon. So go check out the moon tonight as it is a waxing gibbous, a waxing crescent growing into a half moon. I'm your host, Athena Brensberger. Some of you might know me as Astro Athens. Um, and I also call me your in-app astronomer here on Colin. So we have this ongoing series that is titled, How Are Space Objects Named? And the reason we started this was because um, I think a lot of people know how space objects really got their names. And even objects that are still being discovered and how they get their names. Now, most of the time, a lot of the objects we've covered in the past are typically named by some kind of alphanumeric uh, in an alphanumeric order. So it starts with whatever the first object was, usually being A1 um, or something along the lines of that. And then it just sort of continues the more objects that end up being discovered. But sometimes, uh, depending on what the object is and how it looks, it can end up having a very special name. So let's go ahead and jump into nebulae. Now, nebulae, first of all, uh, is that's one of the plural forms of nebula. Nebula, uh, nebula is a giant molecular cloud in space made up of interstellar dust and gas and um, the plural form would also be, it can be nebulas or just nebulae. And that term is actually Latin, which is Latin for cloud. And so that is why it, that's it literally describing what the object actually is, which is a molecular cloud. It's made up of, as I mentioned, the dust and gas, but those elements that make up the dust and gas are some of the most abundant elements in the universe, which are hydrogen and helium. And these are the key elements to actually seed new star life. So you might hear some nebulae referred to as stellar nurseries, uh, such as the Orion Nebula, which is where I actually did my research on protoplanetary disks. And it's called a stellar nursery uh, because it is where newborn stars are, are born. It's where newborn stars form. And once again, that is because of all those elements that are necessary in order for new stars to form. So sometimes um, now uh, the objects can end up looking really, really interesting. Uh, they can look very colorful. Uh, you might have seen some pictures taken by the Hubble Space Telescope of like the Crab Nebula or the Helix Nebula, or uh, let's see, what else is there? The Ring Nebula. There are so many out there. And the four most prominent ones, so I'm actually going to share that with you guys in just a little bit. Uh, but the reason they become so so prominent and so well known is because uh, people have been observing these for centuries, and so since it ties so far back into human history, they are probably some of the most uh, kind of glorified objects in the night sky. Another interesting about nebula, interesting thing about nebulae is that a lot of uh, galaxies were actually mistaken to be nebulae in the past. And that's because it wasn't understood just yet that there was more than one galaxy. They thought that this was just Milky Way was the only galaxy within the universe and that everything else were these sort of nearby objects that just are 
uh, kind of kind of near us, but within our one universe. And everyone's minds started to expand so much more significantly when it was understood that these other nebulae, such as Andromeda, turned out to be an entirely other galaxy. And this is what eventually led to the Hubble expansion, understanding that the universe expands not only uh, quickly, but at an accelerated rate, which means it expands more tomorrow than it did today, more today than it did yesterday, and so on and so forth. Also, hello, everyone who just joined. What's up, Hector? What's up, Mario? Hope you're doing well today. So the four most prominent nebulae, and this is because they've been observed, again, for a very long time. They're really massive. They're really colorful, are the Eagle, the Eagle Nebula, which contains the Pillars of Creation, which you may have seen before, the Omega Nebula, the Trifid Nebula, and the Lagoon Nebula. Now, a few of these, uh, let's see, the last three, I actually was able to image myself with my unistellar scope, which is actually super, super exciting. Uh, I didn't realize that it was part of like the top four nebula ever. Uh, and so those ended up being uh, just the ones that were visible from where I was during the time of the, the year that I was happened to be outside with my telescope and was trying to image some some dark, deep sky objects. And these nebulae are very luminous. So if you ever want to check them out, just go ahead and, and look them up online. Super cool. And so a lot of these have these really cool names, right? The Eagle Nebula, um, the, 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 um, the Crab Nebula, the Lagoon Nebula. And that's because as humans do, we will see an object and then we'll, we'll name it or we'll see like a space object, for instance, then we'll name it after something that we know of here on earth. Uh, it's the same thing with constellations, same thing with even star names and, and planets, which are, you know, actually named after, as we learned, uh, more so Greek mythology, Roman mythology. And so what do you do when an object doesn't really look like something so fancy schmancy? It ends up getting a really boring name, which is an alphanumeric name, about 11 characters long, uh, which is combined with different numbers and letters. And it's useful for catalogs, such as the Messier catalog, the new general catalog, so on and so forth. But it doesn't really make things like uh, the cover of Cosmos. It doesn't make the cover of books, book covers, or the the Hubble Space Telescope cover book. Uh, So it ends up kind of just becoming uh, kind of mixed in and sort of lost with all the other uh, giant molecular gas clouds. So hello, everyone, by the way, who just joined. Hello, Joshua. Hello, Alexander. And plus two others who I believe are tuning in probably from the web browser. So hope you guys are doing well. Uh, So we were talking a little bit about how space objects are named, more specifically nebulae. Uh, which we established is one of the two plural forms of saying nebula. You can say nebulas or nebulae. And, uh, and initially, we talked about how a ne- the word nebula is actually Latin for cloud. And that's exactly what is describes what a nebula is, which is a giant molecular gas cloud that is consistent of, uh, consists of dust and gas, is pr- primarily uh, with hydrogen and helium, some of the most abundant elements in the universe. And these are exactly what's needed to seed new star life. So this is uh, kind of just an overall understanding of what a nebula is. But now we get into the different types of nebulae. 
So the first planetary nebula that was ever discovered, or actually, let me rewind, the very first ever nebula that was recorded was in 1610 by Nicolas-Claude Fabry de Perichque. So this was the Orion Nebula, and it was observed in, then in 1618 by Johann Baptist Sayest. And then the first actual observations, like in details, ended up coming through by Christian Huygens in 1659. So very, very first nebula was Orion. Maybe this is why a lot of people are biased or towards Orion and really, really love it, such as me, uh, because it was one of the most, um, obs- it was the very first observed nebula and one of the most uh, brilliant and and easy to see nebulae that uh, doesn't need a telescope. But then we get into planetary, a planetary nebula. Now, a lot of people, I think, tend to think that a planetary nebula means that uh, there must be like planets that are able to form within it. And although that could be true, because uh, if new stars are forming, planets can form around these new stars. It's actually because the very first nebula that was observed, that planetary nebula, was M27. And it was observed by Charles Messier in 1764. And it was called the Planetary Nebula because it looked like a planet through the telescope. So it was a round shape. And uh, through smaller telescopes, it it really just kind of looked like a planet. So it was called the Planetary Nebula. And uh, this also was uh, confirmed by William Herschel. So NGC 1514. He saw a super bright star in the heart of this planetary nebula and realized that he wasn't looking at clusters, but instead through dust and gas. And as a result, he coined the name planetary nebula. And this was because also it, it ended up sharing a really like it's around the same time that he had ended up discovering Uranus. And so he just thought, okay, this might be another, another planet, uh, but it wasn't. And another really interesting thing is you have supernova remnants. And this exact uh, galaxy, this, this exact nebula, so the ring nebula, um, which is in this image, if you were to check out that one, it has a very, very tiny white dwarf star in the center. And so a lot of these nebulae will form from a star dying and exploding and forming this sort of ring-like shape. And so this is the ring nebula, M57, or also NGC 6720. Uh, A little bit of a quick briefer on those names. We talked about it before, but maybe you won't tune into that episode. So you kind of have this more common name, the ring nebula, which is named after literally how it looks. And then you have two different catalogs, the Messier catalog and the new general catalog. And they're not going to leave this object out of one catalog, but include it in another and when I say they, I'm referring to the International Astronomical Union. So it gets put in both catalogs, but then they both end up needing a designated name based on which catalog it's in. So if you're looking through the new general catalog, look for number 6720. That is the, the ring nebula. If you're in the Messier catalog, look for number 57. So I also, um, now that we kind of established basically uh, a little bit of how nebulae are named, I'm going to read off some of the planetary nebula in a chart that I found online. It's actually on Wikipedia, so if you want to look it up and, and look along with me. And we're going to explore that. So we it starts off with the glowing eye or dandelion puffball nebula. And it looks really crazy. I've actually never seen 
this nebula before. Definitely never seen it in the night sky. And what's cool here is it gives not only the name, but it also gives the distance, the apparent magnitude, which is what it looks like to us here on Earth, and then what constellation it's found in. So this way you can actually go sort of check it out, see if, you know, maybe you want to image it. If anyone here is an astrophotographer, let me know. Um, I would love to maybe highlight your work. So if you want to, I just said hello in the chat if you guys want to comment anything there or send over an emoticon on the bottom right. Awesome. Just got a thumbs up. Rock it. Cool, cool. So we've got a ton of these different um, nebulae here. And, and the first one, looking at the glowing eye dandelion, it looks like it was probably a result of a supernova because everything is expelled outward from the center, which is, I would say, like a pretty clear way to sort of uh, like classify some of these nebulae. A lot of these are sort of look like that. It has like the center point, point. Another one is the Helix Nebula, which is the cover of Cosmos, which you guys might know a little something about. And so a lot of these are really, really distinct in that shape. And as I mentioned, a planetary nebula was named planetary nebula because of its shape, because it's round. And because William Herschel and then Charles Messier, when they were observing it, it looked like it was as if it was a planet through their telescope. So a lot of them end up having this round shape. So why don't you spend some time exploring that a little bit, you know, maybe on your own and look, looking through some of these different nebulae. Um, but to kind of go over just a little bit of, of their names, you'll start to see if you go through this chart, the blue snowball nebula, it, it's very prominent in blue. Uh, it's very round in shape. The soccer ball nebula has its own very distinct shape. The Southern crab nebula. It has these two sort of long extended arms that look kind of like, like crab claws. And so all these, again, are named after things that seem familiar to us earthlings, you know, that we've seen just on our own planet. It makes me wonder uh, to an alien civilization, what would the, what would they name these objects? It, they would probably also name them after things that they're familiar with um, on their own planet. So that's one thing. Uh, these names get confirmed usually by the International Astronomical Union with whoever the discoverer was. But because a lot of these were discovered uh, back in the 16, 1700s, um, the names have kind of just stayed. And the only thing that's changed was really like what, you know, adding them to extra catalogs and then them having that secondary name of NGC and then some number. So let's spend a little bit of time looking at absorption nebulas. So again, two corrections for plurals. Uh, you could do absorption. You could say nebulas or nebulae. Absorption nebulas, uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's absorbing the light that's coming from, uh, if, from, from behind it. And so it ends up kind of casting this shadow. And it has this, again, same thing, molecular cloud, interstellar cloud. And it's just dark, dark circle in the center. Sometimes kind of a crazy shape. And within this region, it can sometimes cause a maybe more distinct shape, such as the Horsehead Nebula. So if anyone, I know that I believe Mario, it's, he mentioned the Horsehead Nebula before on here. We were checking out Astronomy Picture of the Day in our previous episode, and the Horsehead Nebula looks like the head of a horse. Pretty straightforward. Um, but it's a silhouette, 
And so it's an absorption nebula. So if you're ever looking through maybe an astronomy book or whatever you take your first astronomy class, or maybe you're already, you know, at graduate level um, and you're doing stargazing, the easiest way to determine what the nebula is, is if it's round in shape and it looks like a planet, it's a planetary nebula. If it's shadowy and it looks really dark, like a silhouette, it's an absorption nebula. Uh, There's not too much that sort of changes what they are composition-wise. They're still molecular clouds. They're still made of hydrogen and helium gas, the most abundant elements in the universe, and they still concede new star life, which eventually can maybe form new solar systems. Maybe there's other planets out there that are starting to form around newborn stars. So these are really important areas of space that uh, a lot of astronomers look to, to try and do their research. Um, As I mentioned earlier, this is the Orion Nebula, the very first nebula to ever be discovered, was actually where I did my research on protoplanetary disks. And that's because it's considered to be that stellar nursery. That term, stellar nursery, is just what it sounds like. Nurseries are for babies, so this one is for baby stars. This is where baby stars are forming. And I think that that was just so, so fun to me when I was, when I was in an undergraduate, I thought it was so cool. So I was like, I think I want my research to be down that line. So, uh, this, this basically is, is sort of, uh, as I mentioned, straightforward as to where nebulae get their names. Um, usually it's just like constellations or anything else that early humans and dwellers of the earth were, were looking up at the sky. They would look at things and whatever looked familiar to them, to things that we've seen before, we would usually name it after that. So I encourage you guys to maybe go like either get a book uh, of, of nebula images and just sort of look through it or even look up online uh, different different pictures. And you could see there's like literally the butterfly nebula, um, the, the crab nebula. There's so many different kinds that are just named after objects that we've seen here on Earth. So now we get into other things. We have a reflection nebula, which same thing, interstellar cloud made up of dust and gas, uh, like a lot of other things in the universe. Uh, But it also can start to have a little bit of like a darkness to it, but it'll reflect some light that is usually from a nearby star, a really, really massive, massive star. And what's happening is uh, the star is probably young. It's probably new, newly formed. And what's happening is it's not, it's not hot enough just yet to ionize the clouds hydrogen. So what that's just meaning is it's not causing it to actually now start to, uh, cause the cloud to, uh, become excited, cause the elements inside to become excited, causing the electrons to, to be stripped, causing it to uh, become opposite of neutralized. So all those colors that we usually see in some other nebulae, uh, with the reflection nebula, they tend to be a little more sort of common colored. So like they'll, they'll be like, if there's one color to the nebula, it'll sort of stay that color. So purplish hues, black hues, um, kind of bluish, they'll typically reflect whatever the star is that had formed. And since young stars tend to be bluer in color, this is usually what you'll see when it comes to reflection nebulae. So I hope that kind of answers uh, our question today, which is how are space objects named? 
Um, let me know if you guys have any questions, by the way. Feel free to tap the call in button or to leave a comment in the chat section. Um, if you have any questions about any nebulae or if you have gone outside and explored uh, your own backyard sky, if you've been able to look up at the night sky and see uh, what you're able to um, maybe see from your location, it does vary depending on where you are, not just in, you know, per country, but just throughout the entire globe. And uh, this week, we don't have any uh, like nebulae that are visible, but we do have some star clusters, which are typically found near nebulae. So maybe you'll be able to go see something. So I'm going to go ahead and just do a very quick shorts music break, and then we're going to head to astronomy picture of the day. Oh, wait, actually, hold on. It looks like we've just got a caller. All right, Joshua, you are on the mic. What's up? Oh, if you could just go ahead and tap the uh, mute button on the, your bottom right of the screen, that would be awesome. Is there right. anything that we could do time travel? Can you hear me now? I hear you. Yes. Did you hear the question? No, I just heard you say, do you hear me now? Oh, okay. How many generations out before we can do time travel? Oh, well, it's, that's an opinion question, I would say, uh, just because that can really vary. <laughs> time travel. Well, that would have, we'd have to be able to create the technology where we're able to, in a way, break down all of our atoms. This is, this is my, my, my minimum knowledge based on uh, being able to achieve either like quantum teleportation, like in Star Trek, or be able to achieve light speed. So be able to travel at the speed of light. And in order to do that, we'd have to really disassemble our atoms and then reassemble it elsewhere without killing ourselves. And uh, that, I, I think, with our, with, I mean, and our technology is really starting to accelerate. But it, it, if that does eventually happen, I think it's not going to be for maybe another thousand years that's a that's a really just sort of out there guess, or maybe even longer. I, I personally, I don't know if it'll even be possible. The only way I think it might be is if we're able to somehow be able to download any of our of our consciousness, any of our our thoughts, our patterns, our memories onto some piece of hardware that we're then able to put send to another location. So by the time we reassemble all of our atoms into a physical body that is familiar to us, we can upload all of our memories and then it wouldn't even feel like as if we ever, uh, as if we ever died. Uh, I, I, and then to be able to do that at a different time, I'm not sure about going back in time, but I think going forward in time might be a little bit more possible. Um, and the reason for that is just because when we're able to move faster, um, things will start to feel slower for those who aren't moving as fast as we are. But we haven't been able to really conceptualize how to do it the other way. Like, do we move slow enough to be able to then start to rewind our own clock? Um, so that's, that's kind of my opinion on it. Uh, <laughs> well, what do you think? I, I mean, I, I don't think anybody knows at this point. Definitely not. Yeah, that's why I mentioned it's an opinion question. So, what's, what's your what's your opinion on it? Well, wormholes. 
Okay, I heard wormhole. What, what about yeah. wormholes? Well, what's how's the, where, how close is the closest one? We we don't know. We've never we've never discovered one. Oh well, I'm kind of fucked. That's the tricky thing. That's the that's the tricky part, right? I mean, uh, it's it's tough. I guess the the answer to that would be if well, we're able would to. Have to be incredibly small, though. Yeah, why why small? Well, because it would to get through a wormhole. I mean, that's why it would have to be like a virus. Yeah, or like if we're able to somehow get a volunteer to go through a black hole, and maybe we're lucky enough and they travel through a wormhole and end up coming out of the other side, which might be a white hole, which is just hypothetical uh-huh. right now, and that hasn't been actually discovered, but it's it's predicted by by general relativity, and Einstein's been right about a lot of other things, <laughs> so possibly, uh, which would be really cool, but that's that's a that's a very that's a very fun thought thought experiment for sure. Do you have any other questions for me? No. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Joshua. If anyone else has any thoughts to share about that, um, I'd love to hear your answer. So if you guys want to call in and, and sort of maybe give your prediction of when you think we might be able to achieve uh, time travel uh, or you think if you, if you think we'll be able to achieve time travel. All right. Looks like we've got Lauren on the line. Okay. And... All right, Lord, what's up? Hey there. Well, I just well, I wanted to pop in on the whole time travel, uh, uh, teleportation thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, conceptually, we could, you know, make a copy of ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's technically what they're doing in Star Trek and that kind of thing. They're literally they're kind of uploading your pattern, right? And then they're 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 projecting those atoms down onto the surface of a planet or another ship or something like that. And they're they're essentially copying you, so yeah. and they've had a few you know episodes where they've had that go awry, and you have more than one more than one person because you're basically once you've been uploaded into the the the, the system. I mean, you could technically be copied as many times as you've got the ability to re- re- replicate those atoms. But I would think that would be a way to travel a far distance is to actually create a copy of yourself mm-hmm. and, and then and be able to project that to another location perhaps but you'd have to have the hardware at that other location so it's it's kind of a chicken egg kind of thing yeah that's what <laughs> that's where my brain was going earlier too and i was thinking about that i'm like okay if we did have like exactly what you said like the hardware to be able to even put any of our thought patterns on it'd have to be at the end location of where we would go to. So right. how do we even do that in the first place um, without someone already being there that, I mean, maybe there is another civilization that's almost possibly already there. And somehow we come in contact with that. So, so maybe the real answer to the question is fine aliens. And, and there you go. that's more advanced than us. And <laughs> then maybe if you somehow had that wormhole, maybe you could transmit data through it. Yeah. And, and that may be a way of traveling. Uh, through the through 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 time or space or, or, or wormholes or that kind of thing, but anyway, yeah. that's that's just my thoughts on the matter. <laughs> I love that. No, it's 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 great. It's it's like building on where my thoughts currently were, and, and that it made me think about contact as well, and, and just oh, how yeah, they. Yeah. That was a neat. That was a great movie. I love that one. So great. I think we're gonna watch it again. If any, any of you guys haven't watched Contact, you've definitely got to watch it and and read the book as well. So good. Um, well, Lauren, thank you for calling in. Do you have anything else you want to ask or share? 
No, that was it. That was it. <laughs> thank you. All right. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Well, if anyone else wants to call in, feel free to tap that call in button. Um, I love these types of like stimulating questions. It gets me kind of thinking about things. And I feel like most of the time, whatever the question is, unless it's like a very kind of tangible question, that's about like a lot of research that's already been done around the matter. Uh, and the answer ends up being, I don't really know, but let's talk about it. Uh, because that's, that's kind of the joy. That's why there are theoretical physicists out there. Um, all right, we've got a caller, Mario. Okay, Mario, you are on the mic. What's up? Hi, hi. So, Hello. Yes, so the time-traveling question. You know, I actually I get asked that every once in a while, and I always feel wholly unprepared. And I never really like your attitude about it. Oh, I don't know, but let's talk about it. Because that's essentially the best that we can do. Yeah. So, like, when, I, when um, the, the, the canned response I've, you know, I've developed is that, I always say, well, in a way, we already are traveling through time, 60 seconds every minute. So, yeah, in that case, we are. But, you know, that's kind of, like, not really what they're looking for. Right, but like, right. Yeah, but, like, also, like, the, um, the twin experiment of from, from NASA, you know, they sent one twin up into space and for, for, like, a long time, one didn't, and, like, one technically came, they came back, uh, like, a nanosecond younger. So that, in mm-hmm. a way, could be considered time travel. You know, and then, you know, also... um. You know, GPS satellites, they have to, you know, they have to consider relativity in, in their motion in order to continue being accurate in here for us here on Earth. Because since they're going faster, they do, in fact, they, their clocks are, in fact, out of sync with, with us on Earth. Right. So, yeah. So that's usually what I go into. And, like, the lesson in all that is that time is not. It's not solid. One second for you is not exactly one second for someone else or someone else out there or some other thing. That's usually like the lesson is that time is a malleable thing. It's not it's not as exact as you might think. It's relative. If you haven't if you haven't taken a special relativity class, I highly recommend it. Different than general relativity. I did one on I think it was on Coursera and it was through um, one, one of the Ivy League schools, but they offered the the course online and um i think it was maybe like like 40 dollars or something like that and and it's so it was so great and mind-boggling and you do these clock experiments where you say like you know jane on the rocket ship has you know is moving at this speed and then bob is on earth moving at this speed they synchronize their clocks and then you actually break it down and calculate it like through the equations in general in special relativity to compare who's moving faster, who's moving slower. And so exactly that's the point I was making earlier about kind of, you know, if, if we're able to do that today, we're able to, in a way, time travel faster. So into the future in a way, as opposed to backwards in time, which I think is a lot trickier. I can't even wrap my head around it. Um, and the other point I was going to mention is, is you mentioned the um, experiment with the twins. So if anyone doesn't know what Mario's talking about, it's uh, Scott Kelly and Mark Kelly. And they're, they're a set of twins. And um, Scott Kelly went to space for, I think it was, was it a full year? Um, do you remember, Mario? I yeah, think it was a full like, year. The media was like, oh, a year in space. But, you know, you know how the media is sometimes. Right. Yeah. I thought it was like 180 days, but it might have been a full year. Um, I'll, I'll double check that or if anyone knows, just type it in the chat. But 
yeah, and they compared their uh, DNA and, and I guess, I mean, I think it was slightly, maybe got slightly yeah. mutated as well because of the radiation in space. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, there was a yeah. slight age difference. Oh yeah. And it was 340 days. I just searched it up. So close enough. Yeah. 340. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Entire yeah. year. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mario, do you have any other questions or anything else you want to say, want to share? Oh, no, that would be also, you know, yeah, time, uh, relativity, you know, I, you know, it, it's good to talk about because it breaks a lot of, a lot of, like, a lot of mentality because, you know, it, um, you know, like, the concept of relativity, most of us don't even show it, most of us don't come across it, you know, we don't, in our everyday lives, you know, what time it is on, like, time zones, that doesn't really come into account, so, you know, it, it really, you know, it, it, it's, still, it's still messes with my brain, even though to this day, even though I've seen it before. So it's yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's a good bit of sitcom right there. Yeah, really is. Yeah. Wow. Well, Mario, thank you for calling in yeah. um, and sharing sharing your bit of insight. And it looks like Lauren, you just right, uh, you. got a little thing you want to share too. Yeah, I just well, I just thought I'd kind of drop in and, and <clears throat> kind of state we we do to a, a certain extent t- travel back in time, uh, but that's just visually through space you know we're, yes we are looking back in time so yes I mean, we're not physically traveling there but we are seeing what has happened in the past right um, we're able to do that and we can't really do that here on on earth i mean unless we record a, you know an event or something like that we can't look and see in the past but we have to go far out into space to see that well that and that being said like that just made my brain melt because I thought about like, if there <laughs> hypothetically is a, a, another is a civilization elsewhere and they're looking back in time and they're seeing this exact moment of all of us on calling right now talking about this and they're all the way in the future. Oh my gosh, my brain and the light didn't get to them until right now, but I guess it wouldn't be now. It'd be like, you know, a hundred thousand light years from now or a hundred thousand yeah. years from now traveling at the speed of light. Um, yeah. And then they're observing earth. Maybe they're observing an early earth and the light, yeah, it, it took a very long time to travel uh, to get to them. Then they could very well be, be, be seeing all of human civilization now. So hopefully we maybe get to make contact uh, before our planet is, is, is ready to kick the bucket. <laughs> before we're well, cinder in space. Yeah, yeah, or the, or, the, or the sun expands to a red giant and then just gobbles up Earth. Um, but, oh, well, well, I'm glad you called back in to, to share that, Lauren. Do you have anything else you want to share? No, no, no. That was good. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. All right, everybody. Well, um, it looks like we are just about wrapping up here. So, um, so a few announcements. Our next episode of Space Talk is this Friday with Dr. Charles Liu. I am so excited. Cosmologist, astrophysicist, awesome science communicator. Been on uh, Star Talk with, with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Really, he's the one who introduced Neil to me. Uh, great mentor. Great uh, professor at the College of Staten Island in New York. Um, I am so excited and, um, that's probably going to end up being like a three hour episode. Just warning you all now, because when Charles and I start talking, it just ends up being like, just so incredible. And I would love to encourage all of you guys to call in during that episode. He loves engaging with, uh, just curious minds, um, uh, with everyone who loves space and, uh, even knows a lot about pop culture too. Um, maybe we, we can get into sing a tune or a, a song or two. Um, so with all that being said, tune in, it'll be this Friday at 3 PM central time. Um, but till then, thank you all so much for tuning in and I hope you guys get to go outside tonight, look up at the night sky, do some stargazing and until next time, add Astra. Astra.